Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. It's Heather here. Thanks for joining us. I learned so much from episode three, the first segment of our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy series. If you haven't heard it, definitely check it out. The pulse check with Dr. Jose Madrazo on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy imaging was super practical and really brought things together. I can't wait to share this part of our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy series with you, a sit down with Dr. Ed Casper, where he provides a unique historical perspective on how the fields evolved as medicine learned more and more about this unique condition. He shares so many life lessons and clinical pearls that apply not just to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but the practice of medicine in general. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I'm here today, privileged to be with Dr. Edward Casper, uh, my clinic mentor, and it's just a real treat to be with him to talk about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Dr. Casper is a graduate of the Johns Hopkins University with a BA in Natural Sciences. He earned his MD at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. His internship and residency in internal medicine and assistant chief of service, or ACS, of the Thayer Service, as well as his cardiology fellowship, was all done at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. He joined faculty in 1993 and has been teaching ever since. He is currently the director of clinical cardiology at the Johns Hopkins Medicine. More personally, as I mentioned, Dr. Casper is my clinic mentor who has taught me everything I know about outpatient longitudinal cardiovascular care. It's a real privilege to learn from somebody who is so experienced and has millions of clinical pearls to share. Dr. Casper, welcome to the show. Hey, Dan. Thank you very much for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this. We're talking about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy today. That's right. And, you know, this is an area that has interested me really since my training. I was trained in advanced heart failure, heart transplant. That's still what I do with the majority of my clinical work. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy was one of those areas that drew my interest early on. And I can't think of another area that combines so many interesting things in one disorder. You've got the genetics, you've got the pathophysiology, you've got an interesting physical exam. There are things that you can do to help patients. You can minimize symptoms. You've got the whole business of using defibrillators to prolong life. It is just a great group of patients to take care of. The first patient that really triggered all this in me, this interest, was a patient I first met when I was a cardiology fellow, and he was referred up for heart transplantation. He was one of the index cases of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, then called idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis, and diagnosed by Dr. Brunwald at the National Institute of Health back in 1969 or so. An extensive workup back then, and he developed one of the more rare complications of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and that's deteriorating LV function. He presented with heart failure to us, and we ended up doing a heart transplant on him. And I've followed him often from a distance, a little hard to get up here, for many, many years. He's now 30 plus years out from transplant. And the whole story of Dr. Brunwald. Uh, being at the NIH with Dr. Morrow and the story of Dr. Ross and Dr. Mike Criley at Johns Hopkins and how there was some difference of opinion as to whether obstruction existed or didn't exist uh, and how this played out at various AHA meetings where there were arguments one way or the other that 
to spend 90 minutes and was the only thing going on at the AHA at that time. All of this is part of the fascination, frankly, with this disorder. The first reports of HCM came out in 1958, and it wasn't very much longer than that at the NIH that Dr. Morrow did, did the first myectomy. That was 1960. In 1962, a non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy was described, and by 1964, Dr. Brunwald published the comprehensive disease description that I think still stands as an excellent read to help you understand what patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can develop. This first obstruction debate occurred in 1966 at the American Heart Association meeting. Um, by 69 and 70, you had the development of echocardiography and there was documentation of systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. Uh, that was Province Shaw. Calcium channel blockers in 79. Alcohol septal ablation uh, in 1995. Uh, first gene described 1990. Um, this has really been a disorder that's been described and developed within my lifespan. And that's part of what is so fascinating about talking to you about this disease, because we have so many conditions that have been known about forever, and this one was just described relatively recently, and we continue to learn about it. Yeah, it's been a, a great story. Uh, Morrow and Brunwald reported on two cases in 1957. Both of these patients had exertional dyspnea, chest pain, and a holosystolic murmur with high subaortic gradients in the 70s. Remember, 1957... You don't have echocardiography. You really don't have cineangiography. You've got a measurement of pressures and flows, and, and that's about it. And at this point, Dr. Brunwald was a young attending in the cardiac catheterization lab. He sends these two patients to the operating room with Dr. Morrow to fix what was felt to be a subaortic stenosis. And lo and behold, at least under cardiopulmonary bypass and potassium citrate arrest, there was no obstruction. And uh, you can imagine how Dr. Brunwald must have felt to have the first two cases go like this. It's a tribute to his brilliance that he has, that he pushed on to describe uh, a completely new disorder from that early experience. Now, the other thing that's interesting, I think, is that as in most disorders that are de usually described at tertiary care centers and the National Institute of Health was the tertiary care center of its time, the prognosis of these patients were thought to be dismal. And you can imagine why. The only person who would get referred to a place like the National Institute of Health were people who had really flagrant symptoms. And because of that, they didn't do well. With the advent of echocardiography and population screening, all of a sudden, you begin to see that there are many more patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who are walking around doing just fine, feeling great, having no symptoms at all. And then with the uh, onset of extensive genotyping, um, you realize that there are patients walking around with the genotype who don't have the phenotype mm. yet. So this whole thing has been a fascinating story in um, evolution and I'm sure that what we will learn about the genetics of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is that it isn't just the point mutation. There has to be other things influencing the point mutation that changes the presentation, whether that's environmental or other genes, 
hard to know at this time, but I think the next 10 years will really help us understand that better. Pretty cool. What do you think that is going to be learned in the next 10 years that will change that? I think that there will be a better understanding of the, the genetics that uh, I'm sure that these genes have genes that influence them. And uh, and I'm sure there's a fancy genetic term for this that I don't know. But I, I can't imagine uh, that there won't be things like that described. And then there will be all these other post-genetic modifications, methylations, this, that, and the other thing that I think will become clearer and clearer, more and more important in understanding what the prognosis of your patient with this mutation actually is. It's going to be more of a complete picture than what we've got today, which is basically just the genetic information. And it's pretty clear from that that just the genetic information alone doesn't tell you all that you would like to know about this person in front of you and whether this person's going to need a defibrillator or is more prone to develop heart failure or uh, AFib or, uh, or, or what. So a little bit of more time uh, to sort some of this stuff out, I think, is going to make a big difference. That's great. So at the current era, do you routinely screen everybody for genetics or only patients with family members? Or which patients are you going to screen for genetics? So that's an interesting story in and of itself, too. It's, it's a little bit hard to screen people who don't have first-degree relatives. The benefit of genetic screening is not necessarily to the patient. It's more to the family. So if you don't have first-degree relatives, there's no siblings alive, there are no parents, there are no children, then the reason to screen perhaps isn't quite as dramatic as if there are um, first-degree relatives. I personally think that we have to change how we're thinking about the management of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. As doctors, we've been very good at managing the patient in front of us. And in this instance, and in another of other genetic diseases, we have to switch from that mode of thought to a mode of thought that says, I have to take care of this patient and his family, or and her family. It's not just the person in front of you. And in fact, I think if you don't at least offer genetic testing and genetic counseling uh, to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, this is probably malpractice. And um, having a genetics counselor, I personally think, is absolutely critical. Someone who's going to meet with the patient and the family early on, help you think through which kind of tests should be ordered, help you interpret that those tests, and then help you discuss the results with the family. I find a huge amount of help from our genetics counselors. And I'm not sure that I would be anywhere as near as good at this if I didn't have them to help me. It really does speak to the multidisciplinary team that you need for this disorder. Yeah. It's important to have surgeons. It's important to have interventional cardiologists. It's important to have really good imaging, both cardiac MRI and echocardiography. And I know that you've talked with Dr. Jose Madrazo about uh, all of that, but all of this fits into this uh, team approach, which I think is very important. Having said that, it's very important for a fairly small proportion of the patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. There are a lot of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, as I mentioned, who are walking around completely asymptomatic. And I'm not sure that once you get past screening for arrhythmias and thinking about genetic testing, 
that those asymptomatic patients or uh, patients with a positive genotype but not yet the phenotype need anything more other than routine follow-up and echocardiography and ECG testing every three to five years. So the, the two major genes that are uh, variants, that have variants in them, are the myosin heavy chain 7 uh, gene, which was the initial mutation described by the Seidman lab, uh, and myosin binding protein uh, C3. And that those two together probably make up 50%, 60%. There are other sarcomeric proteins that are involved as well. Uh, there's a group that will that will not have a um, genetic cause discovered. And then there's 5 to 10% that include uh, phenocopies like amyloidosis or drug-induced from a drug like tacrolimus, although I personally have never seen a patient with such severe tacrolimus hypertrophy that I, I was worried about the possibility of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And in general, these disorders tend to cause concentric LV hypertrophy. And for the most part, I think it's important to realize that most patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy are going to have asymmetric LV hypertrophy. It won't be truly concentric. And when I see a patient with truly concentric LV hypertrophy, I'm beginning to think about uh, other things, um, Fabre's disease, uh, other disorders that um, could be a phenocopy of uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and or hemodynamic disorders that are really causing uh, diffuse LV hypertrophy. A lot of these uh, genetic mutations tend to present in kids. And so as an adult cardiologist, I, I won't see a lot of them. Um, the PRKAG2 uh, mutation, which is associated with WPW and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we do see a fair amount of that. We do see some Anderson-Fabre disease. Um, there's some Friedrich's ataxia, but a lot of this is stuff that the pediatric cardiologist will know about very early on, and the patient will be referred to me with knowledge of this already. So if we want to talk about the two most common sarcomeric genes in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the myosin binding protein C3 gene has a heterogeneous phenotype even within families, so that you've got some family members presenting early, some family members presenting late, some with more hypertrophy, others with less hypertrophy. In general, you could say a couple of wide generalizing comments about this. Uh, they, these patients may present later in life. A substantial number of these patients with the genotype uh, less than 50 years old will not yet have developed the hypertrophy. So if somebody tells me about someone who presented with LV hypertrophy rather late in life, this is one of the genes I'm thinking about. And that's as compared to the myosin heavy chain 7 gene, which tends to be uh, earlier, higher penetrance, more severe hypertrophy, younger at uh, younger age at diagnosis, and again, substantial clinical heterogeneity. The, you can't entirely rule, rule out coexistence of other genetic mutations, and it's very clear the more other genetic mutations you have in sarcomeric proteins, the higher your risk for bad things happening. I think from a pathology standpoint, the thing that I would emphasize is that our eyes are naturally attracted to the hypertrophy, and sometimes we don't pay as much 
attention to the mitral valve and abnormalities of the mitral valve leaflets themselves and perhaps the papillary muscles as we should. You can have pretty uh, severe abnormalities of the leaflets and the papillary muscles. And if you are going to do LV reduction surgery, it would be important to know about these before the surgeon gets in there so that an appropriate plan could be made to take care of these. Everyone knows about the myocyte disarray, but I think we tend to forget a little bit about the reduced arteriolar density with the medial smooth muscle hyperplasia, which probably plays a role in uh, the angina that these patients uh, can develop. Sure, it's, it's perfusion pressure, it's, it's diastolic coronary pressure minus LVEDP, but if your uh, arteriolar density is reduced and you've got smooth muscle hyperplasia, you need even more of a pressure gradient to sort of push things across. And this is where um, use of a drug like uh, renolazine may actually help patients to decrease the amount of angina that they are having. Peter Pack and Dave Cass, many years ago, 1996 in circulation, if you get a chance and you want to read something about PV loops and various cardiomyopathies, this is a great paper. They um, show examples of normal LVH with hypertension, dilated cardiomyopathy, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And the things that stand out when I look at the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy PV loops is the small LV volumes. The majority of normal and hypertension patients have LV volumes uh, at end diastole of 100 millimeters or more, uh, whereas um, the end diastolic volume may only be 50, 70 cc's or so in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Obviously, the steepness of the end systolic pressure volume relationship. And interestingly enough, if you look carefully at the diastolic relationship, uh, whereas all the other three tend to fall on the same curve, each of these loops in a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy are almost their own curve, suggesting there really is a severe stiffness to, to this left ventricle. So while some may have hypertrophy, others may not have hypertrophy, I think pretty much all of them have some degree of, of left ventricular diastolic stiffness. The story of sudden cardiac death risk assessment is changing right in front of us. Um, two weeks or so ago in circulation, there was a paper from Ontario, Canada that suggested that the incidence of sudden death in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, whether you defined it as definite, probable, or likely hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, was actually pretty small, and that most of the episodes of sudden cardiac death occurred at rest, not with exercise. And so it will be interesting to see whether the phenotype is, of this disorder is actually changing over time, or whether there's something different about Canadians with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or whether we've been overestimating the risk of sudden cardiac death based largely upon the nature of tertiary care centers, as I have mentioned before. If I have to make a choice between the 2011 AHA ACC guidelines and the European Society of Cardiology guidelines, I think I probably tend to use the AHA ACC guidelines more commonly. I don't have a good explanation for that. <laughs> I, I think it's mostly because that's what I've grown up with. It is nice to to get a number. In general, I, I think 
in medicine, we we search for the magic number way too often. What's the ejection fraction below which? What's the uh, aortic stenosis level? What's the and we spend a lot of time looking to find that number rather than sort of looking at the general patient and trying to sort out what does this mean in this person and how can I best treat this person in front of me. And I, I think the AHAACC guidelines lends itself better to that kind of a concept. I am in debt uh, to both writing groups because I think that each of them did a magnificent job and have really improved the care of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or, or at least the guardrails within which we can care for these patients. The other things that may help in decision-making about high risk for arrhythmias would be the presence of late gadolinium enhancement. And I think Dr. Madrazo probably talked a little bit about that. The presence of uh, left apical aneurysm, usually in those with midventricular hypertrophy, a fall in exercise blood pressure, and again, those multiple sarcomeric gene mutations. These are all patients that I think long and hard about that have to have a pretty good reason to not put in a defibrillator. And yet, I would say that I've taken care of defibrillators at Johns Hopkins since I was an intern. It wasn't too many years before I was an intern that the first defibrillator went in at Johns Hopkins. And I certainly have seen a range of complications from things that really startled me, infections that were really nasty, and it certainly has changed the risk-benefit ratio as I think through utility of a defibrillator with a patient. You only need to see a couple of really badly infected defibrillators that have to be removed in order to think long and hard about putting them in patients who don't have a pretty good indication. And unfortunately, with defibrillators, unlike pacemakers, but with defibrillators in particular, you know, we don't have really good indications. We've got uh, lots of suggestions, and um, we've got some very clear-cut suggestions, like um, you know, secondary prevention. That's all very easy and straightforward. But the primary prevention, even in patients with dilated cardiomyopathy, can be a little bit tricky. And I think we do our patients a disservice by just slamming in a defibrillator simply because they fit some arbitrary criteria, even though it has been shown in randomized clinical trials to be of benefit, you then have to ask yourself, well, how much benefit and what's the risk? How do you weigh those two going forward? And that takes some time and some thought and some discussion with patients. This this whole notion of shared decision-making is, is very important in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because people have different goals. There are some people who will tolerate a shocking amount of symptoms. There are other people who will not tolerate any symptoms. And there are those who tolerate beta blockers well, and those you take a beta blocker out of the, the pill box and wave it underneath their nose, and they're having side effects. Yeah, and, um, so talking about what the goals are um, with patients saves a lot of time and trouble in the long run. Trying to get a sense of, of where they are and what they want helps me to decide how best to design a therapeutic program that will help them achieve our goals. Mm -hmm. I think one of the other things to know about therapy 
is that in general, I don't see any reason to treat patients who don't have symptoms. So no matter how much LV hypertrophy, within reason, no matter how much left ventricular outflow tract gradient, within some kind of reason, if they don't have any symptoms, I'm not putting them on a beta blocker, a drug that has side effects and potentially they will be taking for a very long time because I can't change their survival, that there's not been a survival benefit shown in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy to being on a beta blocker, and I can't make any symptoms better because they don't have symptoms to begin with. So first do no harm, no symptoms, no treatment. That's how I think about it. I do spend a lot of time with patients, particularly early on, talking about how to avoid things that decrease LV volume, which will uh, increase left ventricular outflow tract gradients, um, how to avoid dehydration, the importance of, of cutting back on diuretics if they're on diuretics when they have an episodes of diarrhea, trying to avoid afterload reducing agents. There are a surprising number of positive inotropes that hide over the counter uh, in pharmacies. The classical one is pseudoephedrine in anti-cold medications. Competitive exercise is an interesting story, and I think a lot is going to be learned in the next couple of years about exercise in, in general. I have to admit that early on, I told people not to exercise, like pretty much everybody else. Um, with time, I realized that the benefits of exercise outweighed what small risk there was, and so I told people that they should exercise and that they should treat their body as if they were going to survive to age 92. Um, with all of the good preventive advice that we give every other one of our patients who we hope will also live to age 92. I did tell them to avoid competitive exercise, and by that I meant anything that was competitive against other people or competitive against themselves. I worried a little bit about uh, people who are constantly trying to make their treadmill time longer or the steepness of the incline greater, things like that. I encouraged them to partake in moderate exercise um, as frequently as they can do it uh, and to not really push it too much. Having said that, I'm only mildly successful in, in this. Some people don't exercise at all. Other people, you can't stop from exercising. What I will say is that unlike arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia, uh, in which there is a clear detrimental effect of exercise, on function, the same can't be said for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Hmm. There, we're really worried not about what happens to the LV or the RV with exercise, but more what happens to their arrhythmia risk. The other thing to remember is large meals, um, shunting of blood to the gut, and alcohol consumption with the concomitant diuresis that occurs afterwards can also precipitate left ventricular outflow tract gradients. Is there a left ventricular outflow tract that you say, okay, even though they're asymptomatic, I'm going to start them on some therapy? Yeah. Um, initially, I had always said the answer to that question would be no, that um, gradients of 200 millimeters of mercury still didn't deserve therapy if they were truly asymptomatic. The trouble with that is the, the term truly asymptomatic. It's hard to know when patients are truly asymptomatic unless you're living with them. And 
patients have the ability to downregulate their exercise tolerance and ability and not really think about it. And so while they may say their, that their exercise tolerance isn't uh, decreased, when you do uh, cardiopulmonary stress testing, you find out that uh, they are more limited. And in those instances, I think even though they say they aren't limited, I think that's a good case for doing all the things that you need to do, whether that's medical or surgical or cath lab based, in order to fix that gradient. So I do spend a lot of time talking with patients, really trying to figure out just how symptomatic they truly are. Some people truly are not symptomatic and others just don't do anything. And trying to figure that out might be able to save you a cardiopulmonary stress test. Uh, not that it's particularly painful or expensive, but if you can get the same thing with a good history, why not just take the history and be right. done with it? Right. Uh, that's great. In terms of pharmacologic treatment, there are, of course, no large randomized trials, beta blockers or verapamil or dezipramide in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. There are just things people do. And those things that people do appear to work. And so they've not been studied yet. When things get to a point where we would call it, quote, burned out, end quote, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, there I think you should switch them to a standard dilated cardiomyopathy kind of regimen with uh, ACE inhibitor, ARB, perhaps Entresto, a beta blocker, uh, spironolactone, all the things we standardly do for those kinds of patients. From the beta blocker standpoint, there's probably the most data for propranolol, although I personally choose metoprolol uh, simply because it's a drug that I know very well. Um, my mentor in cardiology in medical school was a doctor by the name of Arnie Katz, K-A-T-Z. And Arnie taught me that I should know three, maybe at most four drugs within each broad category, know them well and use them. And unless there's some specific reason, while for a new drug being much better, don't switch um, mm. until you can definitely prove that this is a better drug. So I've used metoprolol. It doesn't have the alpha-blocking capabilities of carvedilol, which could potentially be a problem. And metoprolol has been shown to reduce gradient and symptoms, improve exercise tolerance, and usually it's well-tolerated. But as I mentioned, there are patients who have a lot of side effects to beta blockers. And if that's the case, then I will often try a calcium channel blocker. And not just any calcium channel blocker, but really verapamil and diltiazem, but really mostly verapamil. There is some evidence to suggest that in those with a high resting left ventricular outflow tract gradient and high filling pressures that verapamil may provoke pulmonary edema. And so I'm careful in using it in those sorts of patients. And you certainly can add verapamil to uh, metoprolol if their AV node uh, tolerates it. How do you approach a patient with hypertension and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in terms of drug classes for uh, anti-hypertension? And, and that can be a real problem. There are those patients out there who have two disorders. One's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and the other is resistant hypertension. And just because you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy doesn't mean you're protected from garden variety high blood pressure. So I start with a beta blocker. If that doesn't adequately treat their blood pressure, I would then add verapamil. 
if that doesn't necessarily treat their high blood pressure, then we've got some choices to make. And part of it depends upon how likely I think it is that their left ventricular outflow tract grading is going to be really dependent upon um, LV volume. If they've got really a tiny little slit-like ventricle, then, you know, I really don't want to go towards uh, standard hydrochlorothiazide like diuretics or or other drugs after load-reducing agents like uh, angiotensin receptor blockers. Um, and there I might consider a drug like clonidine, um, which is not a good drug and I don't like to use it. But if their um, left ventricular cavity size is a little bit bigger um, and I can follow them closely, you know, I might try one of these things because like in most things in medicine, you do what works. And if you can show that it works and it lowers the blood pressure and it doesn't increase the gradient, and then you've found a drug that you can use, even though it falls into a category, a possible category, that could potentially increase the left ventricular outflow tract gradient. But if it doesn't, it doesn't, and you can use it. Right. That's great. So do you recheck uh, their gradients, if, or do you go by symptoms? I recheck their gradients fairly regularly. Ah, uh, very good. And um, it's easy enough to do in the echo lab, and... I do it at rest with Valsalva. And with exercise, there was a time when we were using a lot of amyl nitrate. I tend not to use that as much anymore. I'm not really sure why I got away from it, but I did. And so it's really rest, Valsalva, and exercise. It would not be unusual for me to get a baseline, make a drug change, see them in a month, and check it again, as well as talking with them about symptoms, are they more short of breath, are they having more angina, things like that. There are patients in whom I get a standard echo every year or so. There are those where I get a standard echo and exercise stress echo as well, looking for an increase in the labile gradient. And there are those that can cruise for long periods of time without either of these. There are asymptomatic or nearly asymptomatic, they're on good medical regimen, and unless I think that there's something different that I will pick up on an echo, then I don't necessarily just order echoes every time they show up to see me. I do like ECGs um, when they see me. I have often found that the ECG changes predate the echo findings. So uh, fascinating. You, you know, someone with a positive genotype without LVH on echo, you will often see LVH or um, other STT wave changes that shouldn't really be there. And you're sort of hard-pressed to explain before they then go on to develop left ventricular hypertrophy. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting. Zipramide is um, a difficult drug to use. I try to avoid it, in all honesty. It requires an admission to the hospital. It has lots of anticholinergic side effects. But it's a drug that when you use it, often works wonderfully. It uh, can really reduce, if not abolish, resting left ventricular outflow tract gradients. The thing you have to remember is that it can enhance AV conduction and atrial fibrillation or flutter, which can accelerate ventricular response. So you've got to use it with a beta blocker. And it may prolong the QT interval, and that's the reason to start it as an inpatient. Uh, what, what is, how does it work exactly mechanistically? My suspicion is that all of these drugs probably work by being negative inotropes. Mm. They basically work by decreasing systolic, um, the end systolic pressure volume relationship. I'd like to think 
that they increase the end diastolic volume, but there's frankly not a lot of data to suggest that that's actually the case. Even beta blockers? Beta blockers, all of them. But don't you uh, increase diastolic? Oh, because you're saying because the diastolic filling is so bad that you you can space it out. You're not going to fill more. Exactly. Oh, right. There comes a limit to it. It's a little bit like a restrictive cardiomyopathy in that way. Um, you can prolong it so far, but once you prolong it beyond that, you're really not going to get too much more filling. Um, there are patients, however, who do benefit from a slow heart rate. Oftentimes, these are patients who are post-operative. They've got a little bit of a tachycardia. They're a bit hypotensive, so someone stopped their beta blocker. Uh, perhaps someone has started a presser, and you know, this is a, a bad cycle to get into. Mm. A little bit of hypotension, um, stop the beta blocker, a little bit of volume depletion, start them on an inotrope, and it takes a strong person to stand in and say, no, we're going to stop the positive inotrope, and we're going to start something like phenylephrine, which will clamp down on the periphery increasing afterload. Uh, with that kind of a trick, um, some of these patients will be saved. Others have such bad LV hypertrophy that, that this is a vicious cycle they're not going to climb out of. Right. In terms of who I think about for left ventricular alpha tract gradient reduction, again, we sort of talked a little bit about this, and that is no symptoms, no treatment. And however, there's the whole question of what do we mean by symptoms that we've talked about. Then there's the whole business of what do we really mean by treatment? Who are we going to treat and at what time? And these, now we're getting into the areas of taking care of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where having an expertise in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and a multidisciplinary approach, all of a sudden, these are the patients that really benefit. The patient who's cruising along with a positive genotype and, and a 15 millimeter septum and asymptomatic or nearly asymptomatic, and you've got them on a little beta blocker. You know, they probably don't need a multidisciplinary approach. But as you start talking about LVOT gradient reduction, how you're going to do it, are you going to do it in the cath lab or in the operating room? These are sometimes very tricky questions to answer. So myectomy, I think all of us view as really the gold standard. Alcohol septal ablation is an up-and-coming contender. There was a passing interest in, in right ventricular pacing in the past that seems to have lived past its prime. And then, of course, you always have the possibility of doing heart transplant, particularly for those who've developed left ventricular systolic dysfunction. The myectomy surgery has been perfected by people at the Mayo Clinic and at the Cleveland Clinic. And Dr. Schaff at the Mayo Clinic has really done an amazing amount of work on this particular area and should be congratulated. Likewise, the Cleveland Clinic also has a lot of good surgeons who do this sort of work. The Mayo Clinic has looked at their long-term survival. Mind you, this is not randomized in any way. They divided them into three groups, those who went, underwent surgical myectomy, those who weren't operated upon but uh, had obstruction, and those who had no obstruction. And as you can imagine, you can't really know what this non-operated but with obstruction group looks like. 
Are these patients who refused to have an operation? Are these patients who were so sick they couldn't have an operation? It's um, a bit tricky when comparing this. And they published a nice graph in which overall survival is on the y-axis in years, on the x-axis, and it shows that those with non-obstructive cardiomyopathy and myectomy live about the same. Their survival is almost superimposable. Those with non-operated obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy do worse. And at 10 years, they've got a survival of 60% or so. That's a that's pretty bad. But the question is, who are these patients yeah. and how do they fit in the patients that you're particularly caring for? But it's one of the most illustrative papers that I've read. Realize also that you can core out the apex of the left ventricle in those with apical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. This is a surgery that doesn't have anywhere as near the history. Like I said, Morrow was doing myectomies in 1960. This apical coring approach, basically the idea is to make the left ventricle larger. It seems to work. We've done some of these patients at Hopkins, and some of the results have been excellent. In terms of alcohol septal ablation, um, it's creating a selective infarct, of course, and as cardiologists, we've been taught since we were medical students that we want to avoid infarcts, not cause infarcts, and so it can be a little bit um, daunting, perhaps. Um, of course, you need a septal perforator that goes exactly to the right spot. If it goes to the right spot and some other spot, then you can't really use it because you want to infarct the right spot and only the right spot. It's probably as effective in reducing gradient and improving functional class and symptoms um, as myectomy. This is from various meta-analyses. These two have not been compared head-to-head in any randomized way. There's a higher incidence of complete heart block than with myectomy. It's clearly less invasive than myectomy. So patients often will choose this because it's simply a faster recovery. I think the data on arrhythmia um, following alcohol septal ablation is a little bit mixed. It used to be that when we did this, I would almost always suggest we put in a defibrillator. These days, that's not the case. I don't think that just having an infarct in your septum actually dramatically increases your risk for sudden death. Mm. So how do I choose? Well, I, I'd like to try to make this choice with the patient uh, and a group of uh, surgeons and other physicians um, who can weigh in. I favor myectomy in younger patients. Um, clearly, if there are other cardiac repairs that need to be done at the same time, your operation is the way to go. You do need the right surgeon, and not every place has the right surgeon. This is one of those things where you probably don't want to be sending it to a surgeon who does only a handful of these a year. You probably need someone who's doing a fair amount of it. And if there's really extensive left ventricular hypertrophy, you know, these 33-millimeter septums uh, probably are going to do better with myectomy. I favor alcohol septal ablation when the risk of surgery is really high. If the patient wants to avoid surgery, um, when the patient's older and I'm a little worried about getting him through a surgery, obviously you need the suitable coronary anatomy and you need the right interventional cardiologist. So it's... um, Not as simple as just uh, shooting alcohol down a septal perforator. Um, There's a lot that goes into it. You need good imaging. You need the right person who can do the procedure. 
then you need the right patient. So that's sort of how I think about who gets what when I start thinking about LV reduction therapy. So one thing that we have started doing on our show is asking people that we interview, like, you know, you're somebody who I see every day coming to clinic and you're so excited and you, I see you on service and you're just having a blast and really uh, you've been practicing medicine and you continue to have so much fun with this. So what is making your heart flutter that keeps you so energetic and excited about your work? Uh, I, I think a couple of things. Uh, the first is you really have to enjoy taking care of patients. That's the, And it doesn't matter whether they're inpatient or outpatient. I think all of us earlier on in our career when we were interns and residents, to a lesser extent cardiology fellows, kind of looked at outpatient um, work as being sort of something you tacked on to the end of your day. And that's no real way to develop a, a love for outpatient medicine. As I got older, I have really enjoyed the longitudinal care of meeting people and caring for them for 10, 15, 20 years. I've got uh, transplant recipients who I did not take care of at their transplant, but uh, are now 30 plus years out, and I've been following them all this period of time. And so that's a, a lot of fun. The other thing that I think keeps me charged up is that I'm a man who likes variety. This weighs into the question of, am I a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy expert? The answer to that would be, if you mean by hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, person who only cares for patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, then I clearly am not an expert. I care for a lot of different patients with many different diseases, some of which are life-threatening, some of which are, in fact, pretty trivial. I take care of faculty family members. I take care of people who are otherwise pretty well, and I like the variety of seeing that and patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in the same day. Likewise, I enjoy inpatient cardiology too. I think I would be bored if I just did outpatient cardiology or I just did inpatient cardiology. I like the variety of doing both. And then finally, the thing that's really driven me, I think all these years, is working with great people from medical students who are really smart uh, through house officers um, who are just terrific and hardworking, cardiology fellows like yourself, budding cardio nerds, <laughs> um, and frankly, my faculty colleagues in medicine and surgery and pathology and, and all over the hospital. Uh, it has been absolutely a great ride. And I am so happy that I picked working at Johns Hopkins and doing the things that I've been allowed to do. I often wonder why they pay me. I'm pretty sure I would do this, even if they didn't pay me, although... Are you sure you want to say that? I'm pretty sure I don't want to say that, but I'm pretty sure Paul <laughs> Rothman will not be listening to this in any case. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Dr. Casper. This has been a real treat, and I'm sure everyone is going to really enjoy all the things that we discussed, really some high-level stuff, and it's been great. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, that brings us to the end of our show, so it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. Don't forget to check out the amazing illustration that Kareen prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com and please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to cardionerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now, a flutter moment. Hey, Cardio Nerds. I'm Sid Sheckett from Baltimore, Maryland. I'm an ophthalmologist and retina specialist. Believe it or not, I subscribe and listen to the show and I really love it. It's so awesome. 
What makes my heart flutter at work is every once in a blue moon, a patient will come with vague systemic complaints and blurry vision. I'll do a dilated fundus exam and I'll see Roth spots. And I have to take out and dust off that, uh, what do you call it again? Um, stethoscope of mine from med school. And I'll uh, figure out how to put it on my ears again and, and do some good old auscultation skills. And in one patient, I remember hearing that beautiful, soft, high-pitched, early diastolic decrescendo murmur at the third left intercostal space while they were expiring and leaning forward. And I knew it was aortic regurge, endocarditis. Or another patient that I heard that high-pitched holosystolic murmur at the left lower sternal border during inspiration. Yes, a tricuspid regurge. It happened. Anyways, awesome show. Love it. Keep fluttering. Beep. Beep.